On the morning of February 19, 1965, Malcolm X sat down for an interview with Gordon Parks of Time magazine. Parks had written an article on Malcolm and the Nation of Islam two years prior when Malcolm was a loyal follower of the faith's leader, Elijah Muhammad. But now, Malcolm and Elijah were in a bitter and very public war. So much had changed since that first interview two years ago. In fact, Malcolm was a target of the very organization he'd helped build from the ground up. He confided that operatives from the Nation of Islam had tried to kill him twice in the past two weeks alone. He knew he was a dead man walking. It was a matter of when, not if. But despite the dire circumstances, he didn't seem worried. He was determined to face his fate head on. Parks was astounded at how calm Malcolm was. As the two men parted, Malcolm placed his hand on Parks's shoulder and murmured the traditional Muslim blessing, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Just two days later, Malcolm X was dead. Welcome to Assassinations on the ParCast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. Welcome to our second of three episodes on the assassination of Malcolm X, who was killed on February 21, 1965. Malcolm was murdered at the Audubon Ballroom in Manhattan by a group of men from the Nation of Islam. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. In late 1963, Malcolm X was at a crossroads. His faith in Elijah Muhammad was broken. Despite his crucial role in growing the Nation of Islam from 400 to nearly 40,000 members, he was no longer welcome within the organization. Malcolm was horrified when he learned that Elijah had fathered children with nine different women, in defiance of the strict lifestyle Elijah demanded of his followers. Then, to add insult to injury, Elijah gave Malcolm a 90-day suspension on public speaking after he made controversial comments about John F. Kennedy's assassination. But Elijah didn't really care what Malcolm had said about JFK. Deep down, he was jealous that Malcolm was eclipsing him as the face of the Nation of Islam, or NOI. Elijah wanted to send the message that Malcolm had grown too big for his britches. The message was relayed through the NOI pipeline, and it made its way to Joseph X. Gravit, a member of a mosque Malcolm ran in Harlem. Gravit was one of Elijah's most loyal followers, and he was instructed to get rid of Malcolm permanently. Gravit placed a call to fellow NOI member Anus M. Lukman, who was a Vietnam War veteran and an explosives expert. He asked Lukman to wire a bomb to Malcolm's car so it would explode the next time he turned the ignition. Lukman didn't share Gravit's same blind loyalty to Elijah. 
He used to be one of Malcolm's most trusted assistants, and he wasn't about to turn on him. Instead, he paid a visit to Malcolm's house to warn him of the threat. Malcolm was shocked. Jealousy and public speaking suspensions were one thing. Assassination attempts were another. His relationship with Elijah had deteriorated far more than he'd realized. After that warning, Malcolm grew paranoid. He began seeing the faces of Muslims he knew everywhere he went. Knowing that any one of his mosque's members could try to kill him at any moment was almost too much to bear. But even though his position within the Nation of Islam was tenuous, there were still thousands of African Americans who looked to him as a leader. Over 70 radio stations broadcasted his speeches every week. He couldn't just walk away. On March 8, 1964, Malcolm called a press conference at New York's Carver Ballroom. As camera flashes blinded him, Malcolm took a deep breath. It was now or never. He cleared his throat and spoke. Quote, I am going to organize and head a new mosque in New York City known as the Muslim Mosque Incorporated. This will give us a religious base and the spiritual force necessary to rid our people of the vices that destroy the moral fiber of our community. Malcolm focused on his own message rather than dragging the nation of Islam through the mud. He didn't give any specifics on why he'd broken with the organization. Only Elijah could have caught the hidden meaning of the vices that destroy the moral fiber of our community. And he certainly did. The day of Malcolm's announcement, Elijah gave a phone interview with the New York Amsterdam News where he repeatedly called Malcolm a hypocrite. This was another coded message to Elijah's followers that Malcolm should be killed. According to the Nation of Islam's teachings, the Quran teaches Muslims to kill hypocrites wherever they may find them. And just to be sure, Elijah told a high-ranking minister that the only way to stop Malcolm was to, quote, get rid of him the way Moses and the others did their bad ones. When you try to be peaceful and nice and love them, they just jump up and try to take over. With these hypocrites, when you find them, cut their heads off. Malcolm didn't let the death threats slow him down. In fact, he egged them on. On March 10th, two days after his press conference, Malcolm told Ebony Magazine that NOI leaders have, quote, got to kill me. They can't afford to let me live. I know where the bodies are buried. And if they press me, I'll exhume some. End quote. A month later, the April 10th, 1964 edition of the NOI's magazine featured a cartoon of Malcolm's severed head shouting obscenities about Elijah as it bounced down the street. Malcolm took these threats in stride. He put his mission before his own personal safety. But before he could begin building his new organization in earnest, there was something he had to do. With his faith in Elijah broken, he had to make sure his faith in Allah wasn't broken as well. Malcolm decided to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. While it's expected for traditional Muslims to make the journey during their lifetime, members of the NOI weren't expected to do so. Malcolm wanted to see if the journey affected his faith in any meaningful way. As Malcolm boarded his flight to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, he began to feel an unfamiliar emotion, nervousness. 
Malcolm was unfamiliar with the traditional rituals, since the NOI had their own set of practices, and he was worried he'd be the only one who didn't know what he was doing. For once, he would have to let go of his status as a leader and become a follower. As he gazed at his fellow passengers, Malcolm was astounded at the diversity he saw. He had never really considered the Muslim community outside of the NOI, which was an entirely black organization. He now realized that people of all colors could honor Allah and honor each other in turn. His nervousness about his outsider status melted away as quickly as it had come. Unfortunately for Malcolm, there were still bumps in the road ahead. When he went through customs in Jeddah, the clerk stopped him. Because he was American and didn't speak Arabic, the authenticity of his faith was in doubt. The clerk told him he had to present himself before the Magama Sharia, the Muslim High Court, before he could be let into the country. Malcolm watched the friends he'd made on the flight walk through customs without him. It was three in the morning on a Friday, the Muslim holy day. He wouldn't be able to see a judge until Saturday at the earliest. A guide took Malcolm to a dormitory-like building outside the airport where he stayed in a room with 15 other people. When it came time to pray, Malcolm was embarrassed. Even though the NOI required him to pray to Mecca five times a day, he'd never learned Orthodox Muslim rituals or ceremonies. Throughout the day, Malcolm wandered the halls of the dormitory feeling adrift. But as he sat alone on his prayer rug that night, he was hit with a sudden burst of inspiration. He remembered that he knew the son of a prominent Muslim who lived in Jeddah, a man by the name of Dr. Omar Azam. After a quick phone call, Dr. Azam came to the airport and helped Malcolm sort out his situation within half an hour. Malcolm was floored by Dr. Azam's kindness and hospitality. What shocked him most is that, although he was Middle Eastern, Dr. Azam's skin would have been considered white in the U.S. After the racism he'd grown accustomed to back home, Malcolm couldn't believe that a white man was helping him for no reason other than the goodness of his heart. Malcolm's brief stay with Dr. Azam greatly affected his outlook on racism. He'd long believed that white people were inherently devils, but clearly Dr. Azam was no devil. He considered the possibility that other white people could have the same kindness in them. Dr. Azam and his family were able to secure Malcolm a hearing with a judge the next morning. The judge was impressed by Malcolm's sincerity. He was recognized as a true Muslim and allowed to complete the pilgrimage. From Jeddah, Malcolm traveled 40 miles east to Mecca, where a guide greeted him and took him to the Great Mosque. The next stop on the journey was Mount Arafat, a 230-foot hill where the Prophet Muhammad delivered his final sermon. As Malcolm stood atop Mount Arafat gazing at the sunset, he felt at peace. He was ready and renewed for the challenges that lay ahead when he returned to America. Malcolm finally returned to America on May 21, 1964. He had only been gone for about two months, but upon his return, he found himself under more scrutiny than ever before. The moment Malcolm stepped through customs, he was surrounded by a mob of 50 or more reporters. At first, he wondered if a celebrity had been on his plane. 
But then he realized the cameras and microphones were all pointed at him. They asked Malcolm if he was behind the gangs of black men who were killing white people. Furthermore, was he encouraging black citizens to form illegal rifle clubs? Malcolm was bewildered. How could he be responsible for these things if he hadn't even been in the country for months? Amid the chaos of flashing cameras and shouting reporters, he came to a realization. He was being scapegoated by the Nation of Islam. But Malcolm was never one to be knocked back on his heels. If they wanted material, he'd give it to them. Malcolm said something nobody was expecting. He was willing to work with white people who were genuinely interested in improving conditions for African Americans. The reporters were stunned. Up to this point, Malcolm's entire platform had been defined by his refusal to work with white people in any way, shape, or form. Once the reporters were shocked into silence, Malcolm spoke about his transformational experience abroad. He had seen the power Islam had to unify people of all races, and he wanted to do the same at home. The press ate it up, but Elijah Muhammad was livid. His efforts to discredit Malcolm had failed. His former protege was more famous than ever. In the following days, Elijah made a tape to be played at every NOI mosque. On the topic of Malcolm X, he said, this hypocrite is going to get blasted clear off the face of the earth. Coming up, we'll take a look at the plan that made Elijah's intentions a reality. Now, back to the story. In late May of 1964, Talmadge Hayer, a 22-year-old Nation of Islam member, was walking down the street of his neighborhood in Newark, New Jersey. He heard a car pull up beside him. He recognized the two men inside as his fellow mosque members, Benjamin Thomas and Leon Davis. They asked Hayer to get in. He did. As the three men drove around town, Thomas and Davis told Hayer something he'd already suspected. Word was out that Malcolm X should be killed. Neither men mentioned where they'd heard this, but Thomas was the mosque's assistant secretary. It was clear the hit was coming from the NOI's upper echelons. Hayer agreed to help them kill Malcolm. He was a loyal member of the NOI, and he would have taken Malcolm's betrayal to heart. As the Quran said, hypocrites couldn't be allowed to live. Thomas, David, and Hayer recruited fellow Newark mosque members William X and Wilbur X. All five men were also members of the Fruit of Islam, a paramilitary unit that was initially formed for self-defense to protect NOI members if they were threatened by outsiders. However, in recent years, the Fruit of Islam had become an instrument of enforcement for Elijah and other high-ranking NOI ministers. Elijah was a holy figure to his followers, and if he told the Fruit of Islam to take care of someone who was becoming a problem, they would do it without a second thought. It was just an extension of their mandate to protect the NOI. Not much is known about Hayer and his accomplices, but they were all young, impressionable, and had a history of violent crimes. They made perfect foot soldiers for the plan Elijah had masterminded. More fuel was added to their fire on June 13, 1964, when a lawsuit brought Malcolm and the NOI face-to-face -face for the first time in over a year. 
The Nation of Islam was trying to force Malcolm's family out of their home in Long Island, which had been purchased with NOI funds. Normally, a matter as mundane as a real estate dispute would mean a nearly empty courthouse. But on the day of the hearing, the Queen's Civil Court was packed to the brim. The New York Police Department wasn't leaving anything to chance. 32 policemen were assigned to protect Malcolm during the proceedings, and by all accounts, he needed every last officer. The gallery was split nearly half and half between Malcolm's supporters and the NOI. The air was so tense, you could cut it with a knife. Upon taking the stand, Malcolm revealed the reason he had grown disillusioned with Elijah, that Elijah had taken on nine different mistresses, and he had children with all of them. The courtroom descended into chaos. We don't know whether Malcolm had planned this reveal or if it was a spur-of-the-moment decision. Perhaps he was tired of being depicted as the villain while Elijah's image remained spotless. Perhaps he wanted to lure some NOI members over to his side. But all he accomplished was enraging Elijah even further. Two weeks later, Elijah gathered members of the Fruit of Islam at one of the NOI's armories in New York. FOI members had come from across the country to hear Elijah speak. It's very likely that Talmadge Heyer and his friends from the Newark Mosque were in attendance. When Elijah called the crowd to order, he declared that, quote, the 10-year rule of Malcolm X is over. If anyone in the audience wasn't sure what that meant, his son, Elijah Jr., cleared it up for them. He said it was time for Malcolm to die one way or another. And if it was the NOI that did it, all the better. That same day, Malcolm announced the formation of a new initiative, the Organization for Afro-American Unity, or OAAU. It was politically oriented, with the aims of organizing black Americans into a solid voting bloc that could wield significant power within the United States. This was a stark contrast to the NOI, which advocated for an entirely separate black state. Malcolm knew this wouldn't sit well with Elijah, especially after his explosive revelations at the courthouse. He was on high alert and ready to fight back if he needed to. The night of the 4th of July, Malcolm was working at home with a babysitter there watching his children. Around 10 p.m., he was hit with a sinking feeling. He realized he had left his car in front of the house, a clear indication that he was home and vulnerable to an attack. He had to move it to a less conspicuous location to throw any potential assassins off his scent. Before leaving the house, he showed the babysitter how to use his rifle. She understood and was ready to defend the children if she had to. Malcolm slowly opened the door. The coast was clear. He made a run for it. He got into his car, but before he could peel out, two Nation of Islam enforcers came running out of the dark. They went for the car doors, but Malcolm quickly locked them and drove away. He circled the block a few times, but the enforcers had disappeared. Satisfied they were gone, he parked the car down the street and went back inside. Malcolm called the police to tell them about what happened, but they didn't believe him. Despite their apparent concern about his safety at the court hearing, they thought he was making up the incident as a publicity stunt. While they weren't necessarily trying to get him killed, 
the NYPD wasn't exactly interested in helping Malcolm. He had embarrassed them during the Hinton-Johnson incident a few years prior, when he'd brought public attention to the savage beating of an innocent man by NYPD officers. If anything happened to him in New York, Malcolm was on his own. And yet the work continued. Malcolm returned to Africa on July 9th to gather support for the OAAU. They were going to take the fight for African-American rights to the UN's Human Rights Council. He spent the next four months crisscrossing Africa, meeting with prominent leaders in an effort to gain support for his cause. Meanwhile, Elijah fell into a deep depression. His failing health, deteriorating marriage, and Malcolm's growing success began to weigh heavily on him. But he wasn't done fighting yet. In September, Elijah summoned a select group of Fruit of Islam soldiers for a highly secretive meeting in Chicago. So secretive, in fact, that Elijah gave the invitees strict instructions not to mention it to anyone, not even their superiors within their mosques. Elijah was suffering from heart issues and chronic bronchitis, but he found the strength to rant about Malcolm for over eight hours, who was, in his words, the greatest hypocrite the NOI has ever seen. He insisted that Malcolm had to be stopped by any means necessary. Malcolm returned to New York two months later on November 24, 1964. His trip to Africa had been a resounding success. The new president of the UN General Assembly was arranging for Malcolm to open an office in the UN building. Things were going swimmingly at home, too. In December, Malcolm established a mosque in a section of Manhattan's Audubon Ballroom, where he held weekly religious and civic meetings. Rich and poor alike would cram into the 200-seat ballroom to hear Malcolm speak. On any given day, a homeless drifter could be found sitting shoulder to shoulder with celebrities such as Dizzy Gillespie, John Coltrane, and Louis Armstrong. Malcolm had definitely surpassed Elijah as the preeminent black Muslim leader in America. NOI members were defecting to Malcolm's side in droves, even some of Elijah's own sons. With momentum beginning to build, Malcolm went on a whirlwind speaking tour across Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. There were Fruit of Islam hit squads waiting for him at nearly every stop, but they were never able to catch him off guard. On January 28, 1965, Malcolm flew to Los Angeles to testify on behalf of two former NOI secretaries who had filed paternity suits against Elijah. Malcolm felt a personal responsibility to help the women since he had exposed Elijah's adultery in the first place. As Malcolm's friends waited to pick him up at LAX, they noticed the man sitting behind them was John Ali, Elijah's chief aide. This immediately sent up red flags. Malcolm's trip to LA was supposed to be a secret. They immediately notified airport security who were able to get Malcolm safely through the airport and into his car. But more NOI men were waiting for Malcolm in the lobby of his hotel. They followed him the entire day and night he spent in Los Angeles. Malcolm was on guard, but they never made a move. They just watched. Finally, as Malcolm's friends were driving him back to the airport, the NOI hitmen pulled up next to their car at a stoplight. Thinking on his feet, Malcolm grabbed his friend's cane and brandished it out the window as if it were a rifle. 
the gambit worked. The NOI's cars fell back, and Malcolm made it to his plane safely. But Malcolm had finally had enough. The very next day, on January 30th, he appeared on the Irv Cupsonet show and let loose against Elijah. He called him a liar and a coward and accused him of being a faker and a peddler of inauthentic Islam. Elijah didn't waste any time using Malcolm's words to incite his loyal followers to action. He penned an article for the February 12th edition of Muhammad Speaks, in which he said he would soon, quote, no longer have to suffer Malcolm's attacks. He was right. Within 10 days, Malcolm would be dead. Coming up, we'll explore the last few days of Malcolm's life. Now, back to the story. On February 13, 1965, the Queen's New York Civil Court finally made a decision regarding Malcolm's house. It legally belonged to the Nation of Islam. Malcolm was to be evicted. He flew home at once to file an appeal. Once he filed the paperwork, Malcolm headed home, eager to see his wife and children after spending so much time on the road. It was nice to enjoy a moment of peace amidst so much chaos, but it didn't last long. Around 2.45 in the morning, Malcolm woke to the sound of glass shattering. He stumbled into his living room and saw it was being consumed in flames. The house had been firebombed. Malcolm knew there wasn't a moment to spare. He woke his wife and children and they ran out the kitchen door into the frigid night. His attackers were nowhere to be seen, but he knew the Nation of Islam was behind it. The authorities didn't believe him. They claimed Malcolm burned the house himself to attract publicity. Malcolm became convinced the NYPD wasn't just ignoring the NOI's repeated attempts on his life, it was complicit in aiding them. Two days after the firebombing, detectives discovered a whiskey bottle filled with gasoline on a dresser in Malcolm's daughter's room. They cited it as evidence that he had burned the house down himself. But it was Malcolm's wife, Betty, who had originally found the bottle and pointed it out to the firemen when she came back to salvage their belongings. Malcolm was certain the police had planted it there. Whether the police planted the bottle or not, they clearly weren't interested in coming to Malcolm's aid. Talmadge Hayer and his associates from the Newark Mosque caught wind that the police weren't protecting Malcolm. They knew it was the perfect time to strike. We should note here that there's been some dispute about who helped Hayer carry out the assassination. We'll get into that issue next week. Hayer and his accomplices, whoever they were, decided to carry out the hit during Malcolm's next meeting at the Audubon Ballroom on February 21st. They spent the next week meticulously planning out the attack. On February 15, 1965, they attended one of Malcolm's meetings as a dry run so they could get a sense of what security Malcolm would have. They were shocked to learn there would be next to none. Normally, Malcolm would have people searched for weapons at the door, but had stopped recently because he felt it made people nervous. Even though he knew his life was in danger, Malcolm always put his message before his own safety. The NYPD, as Hayer had already learned, wasn't offering Malcolm any assistance. With no police presence, 
the only protection Malcolm would have was a couple of bodyguards. And despite the constant attempts on his life, for whatever reason, Malcolm told his bodyguards not to arm themselves. Heyer had no such qualms about firearms. He bought the weapons for the attack himself, two pistols and a shotgun. The plan was to have one of the men start a commotion and throw a smoke bomb to distract the crowd, while Heyer and two others gunned Malcolm down and made their escape. On the morning of February 21st, Heyer and his associates drove to New York and parked their car near the George Washington Bridge. They blended into the crowd of 400 people waiting to enter the ballroom. With no guards checking for weapons at the door, they were able to bring their guns inside without any problem. Heyer sat down in the front row, with his conspirators seated nearby. The room was buzzing with anticipation, but nobody knew what was about to happen, except for maybe Malcolm himself. On the Tuesday before he died, Malcolm had remarked to a friend, quote, I have been marked for death in the next five days. I have the names of five black Muslims who have been asked to kill me. I will announce them at the Sunday meeting." End quote. It's not clear if he actually knew about Heyer's plan or if it was just a bluff, but he knew his death was imminent. Here's his daughter, Ilyasa Shabazz, speaking about it. There were people who had conspired to assassinate him, and he knew it and he talked about it, and this was the fateful day. On that fateful day, Malcolm arrived at the ballroom at around 2 p.m. The chaos of the past few months was finally starting to take a toll on him. Instead of his usual long-legged, energetic strides, he sluggishly trudged into the building. As he sat in his small dressing room, Malcolm debated if he should even take the stage or not. He knew he was becoming increasingly divisive when all he wanted to do was unite people as one powerful force for change. Ultimately, he decided to speak. Before going on stage, he remarked to one of his assistants that he was going to have to stop saying it was solely the Nation of Islam that was trying to kill him. He was becoming increasingly convinced that it was the U.S. government trying to kill him, and they were just using the NOI as their tool for doing it. Then, it was finally time for Malcolm to take the stage. He had been irritable all day, and he apologized to a young assistant for being short with her. As his name was announced, Malcolm paused for a moment, lost in thought. Then he walked onto the stage. His sluggishness melted away as he faced the audience. He was in his element. As the applause died down, he called out his traditional greeting. Assalamualaikum, brothers and sisters. Peace be with you. 400 voices responded as one, Assalamualaikum salam, and with you, peace. Heyer fidgeted in his seat. Everyone was in position. All that remained now was the signal to act. Malcolm opened his mouth to begin his speech, but he was interrupted when a man sitting about eight rows back yelled that someone was trying to pickpocket him. The audience swiveled around to look at the commotion. Malcolm said, hold it, hold it, don't get excited. Let's cool it, brothers. This was it. It was almost time for Heyer to act. They just needed a little more chaos. One of the assassins detonated Heyer's homemade smoke bomb. The audience scattered. 
Malcolm and his bodyguards were so focused on getting everyone calmed down that they didn't notice Hayer and the other two men in the front row reaching for their guns. Hayer stood right in front of Malcolm, his gun raised. Before Malcolm could react, he and the other men unloaded bullet after bullet into Malcolm's chest. Malcolm's hands flew to his chest, almost in disbelief. He fell backwards, landing on the ground with a thud. Hayer and his friends kept shooting until they ran out of bullets. Then, they disappeared into the crowd. Malcolm's bodyguard, Gene Roberts, spotted Hayer moving through the ballroom. The two men locked eyes. Roberts pushed his way toward Hayer, determined to not let him escape. But Hayer still had one bullet left. It pierced Roberts' suit coat, but missed his body. Thinking fast, Roberts hurled a chair at Hayer, knocking him to the ground. Hayer got up and tried to make a run for it, but his leg was injured. Another security guard had spotted the commotion, and he had ignored Malcolm's request to go unarmed. The guard hit Hayer in the left thigh. Hayer hobbled for the exit, but the crowd surrounded him and beat him to the ground. Malcolm's wife, Betty, fought her way toward her husband. There, on stage, a nurse who happened to be in the audience was trying to save Malcolm's life. Once Hare was subdued, Jean Roberts rushed to Malcolm's side and helped her perform CPR. But it was too late. Malcolm X died on the stage of the Audubon Ballroom. His bitter conflict with Elijah Muhammad had come to a tragic, violent conclusion. Malcolm was finally at rest. But for his legions of loyal followers, the fight was just beginning. Next week, we'll delve into the fallout from Malcolm's death and his enduring legacy. Was he right about the U.S. government conspiring to kill him? And would his killers ever face justice? Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We hope you enjoyed part two of our series on Malcolm X. You can find more episodes of Assassinations, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, Sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Alex Benedin and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. <laughs> <laughs>